It's time for the number one talk show of Eastern Connecticut and Southern Rhode Island. The Stu Breyer Potpourri Talk Show on 1310 WICH. Now, here's Stu Breyer. WICH AM and FM, Potpourri, because we cover so many topics, and we're going to talk about eating disorders right now. And on the line with me is uh, Rebecca Bardwell, eating disorder treatment expert. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Stu. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. We haven't had a segment on eating disorders in a very, very long time. And uh, is it more common these days or less common, you know, after the uh, untimely death of Karen Carpenter, everybody was started to talk about anorexia and all the information came out and just reading some information, uh, there are all kinds of different eating disorders, aren't there? Absolutely, Stu, and and eating disorders are a real problem, and actually about nearly 30 million Americans will experience an eating disorder in their lifetime, and they are, it's so important that we take them seriously. If only we took eating disorders as seriously as we take the treatment for substance use disorders and we didn't glamorize them as much as we do, we would be in a much better place. There's about there's over 10,000 people that die a year from eating disorders, which is about one person every 52 minutes. And ironically, that's the same as people that die from drunk driving incidents, yet there is nowhere near the amount of awareness about eating disorders as there are people that struggle with substance use disorders. So uh, and you've been, of course... Uh Excuse me, you've been, of course, involved with this for a long time, and um, is it just a psychological situation? Yeah, so I think that there are a number of things that lead to somebody developing an eating disorder. I mean, I think a combination of nature and nurture, so both psychological and situations. Um, eating disorders can start at a very young age. By age six, people start to express concerns about their own weight and shape. We know that there are even statistics that say about 40 to 60% of elementary school girls, ages 6 to 12, are concerned about their weight. And about 10 to 20% of women and about 4 to 10% of men in college suffer from an eating disorder. We primarily always think that it's young people, but um, do people, do you see situations, people later in life all of a sudden develop? Uh, and I, I say this because I had a dear friend who I think was about 40 and never gave any indication of it, and then I hadn't seen her for a year or two and found out that she had passed because she stopped eating. Exactly, exactly. So eating disorders can start at any age. We do typically think of them starting in younger age, but really there is no age, gender, sexuality uh, that that is immune from this. Race, ethnicity, we see them across the whole spectrum of, of humans. And uh, nobody really is immune. Does the media have a lot to do with this or what you see in magazines? You're supposed to look this way. Of course, these people are all doctored up and they make millions of dollars. Is that one of the big magnet draws that people say, oh, I want to look that way? That, that certainly can have a lot to do with it, especially social media and the draw there. We know that um, social media does have a huge impact, especially on young ones and on everybody, because it creates these unrealistic standards. And with all the filters, p- 
people are so disappointed with what they see in a mirror because they are so focused on how they look in filters, which really isn't how anybody looks in real life. So, Rebecca, tell us about the, uh, and I've got a little list in front of me, the different types of uh, eating disorders. It's not just anorexia. Tell us about That's some right. of them. Thank you so much for saying that. So when people think of eating disorders, they usually do think about anorexia. Um, but anorexia nervosa is actually the rarest eating disorder. And um, the most common eating disorder is actually binge eating disorder, where people eat in secret, they eat even in the absence of hunger, they experience a lot of guilt and shame. They may not even realize they have an eating disorder because they are so shamed for their eating behaviors. Some people are in a larger body when they suffer from binge eating disorder, and so they experience weight stigma on a daily basis. And um, also bulimia nervosa is another type of eating disorder. But really the most common is binge eating disorder. And then after that, it's something called atypical anorexia, which ironically is much more typical than anorexia. And so that means that people are restricting their intake at a, at a dangerous amount. They are just not a significantly low body weight because not everybody's body responds the same way. And it's so important to remember that Everybody needs fuel to function, and it is dangerous to restrict your intake regardless of the size of your body. So let's talk a little bit about binge eating. You, know, you see people that they're obviously overweight, and uh, do you look at those people as with an eating disorder or just not having well, the willpower? I, I don't... I don't think we can decide that somebody is overweight just <clears throat> by looking at them. I mean, deciding whether or not somebody's... Um, I mean, and that just comes with an assumption that somebody's weight is a problem, and people in all different body shapes and sizes are medically healthy. And if we are going to look at somebody's growth, it's so important that we use their growth charts. Everybody that sees a pediatrician from the age of, from birth to age 22, has a growth chart. And that's really what we should be using to identify appropriate growth patterns for that individual. The BMI is just not a good tool to use for that, for deciding that. And too many people think that they can tell somebody's health status just by looking at them, but really we can't. What are some of the signs that um, parents should look for, or with anybody, friends, neighbors, themselves, that, uh, hey, maybe I really do have a problem? Absolutely. I mean, the best thing um, parents can do is to practice body positive language themselves or body neutral language themselves and avoid talking about their own weight, food, calories, or other people's body shape, sizes. Uh, Something that people do without even realizing is they assign a moral value to food, calling some foods good and some foods bad. And it's so important that parents keep an eye out for constant repetitive dieting, hiding, hoarding, or stealing food, um, making excuses for missing meal times, depression, anxiety, low self-esteem. School performance is actually not an indicator. Oftentimes, people with eating disorders still do very much excel in school. And Interesting. And they, uh, I assume that they do other things to keep their weight down, uh, maybe exercise too much, things like that. Sure, sure. For the eating, not every eating disorder is focused on keeping weight down, but for the eating disorders that are, yes, excessive exercise is absolutely part of that. There's also an eating disorder called ARFID, which is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, 
And in other terms, it's a severe form of picky eating. So people that have are avoiding their intake, not because they want to change their body shape or size, but because they might have sensory issues or just a lack of interest in eating or a fear of medical consequences. And that does affect their growth and their intake. So, Rebecca, is it true that even someone who is uh, relatively thin always perceives themselves as not thin? So in the case of anorexia nervosa, yes, they do not see themselves the way that other people see them. Mm-hmm. That is true. So no matter what they do, it's, they're never going to say, okay, I'm at a good weight, that's enough. How well, hard is it? It's also important mm-hmm. that they uh, begin to take in an appropriate amount of nutrients because our brains work better when we're better fed and we're less likely to have that all or nothing thinking. It's one of the What are some of the obvious consequences for people who have uh, these eating disorders? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, um, eating disorders have the second highest mortality rate out of any other mental illness, and they are only second to the amount of people that um, die from opioid-related overdoses. Would you be more prone to cancers and things like that? Mm Mm-hmm. Would you be Cardiac more arrest yeah. is, a, is, a, is a frequent occurrence because um, of the electrolyte imbalances that occur. Low heart rate, high heart rate, low glucose. It's very dangerous. So it can catch you in just about every aspect of your health. I know every aspect, my, yes. My friend who stopped eating and became anorexic, um, she had cancer and all kinds of health issues. Because of it. Absolutely. Right. And it, and it lowers your immune system. And so you are more susceptible to other illnesses when you're not feeding your body enough or when you're malnourished in general and not eating a combination of all the right things. So besides uh, not eating hardly anything, uh, is there a lot of medicine that people take as well that they shouldn't be? You know, I think that people use, can use substances in order to lower their appetite or suppress their appetite, and that is always very dangerous. Um, and they can use illicit substances or over-the-counter substances, and again, that just adds to the difficulty the body has in keeping itself mm-hmm. alive and keeping itself functioning and with an already diminished heart and other electrolyte imbalances, adding other things to the equation just increase the lethality. So for those, and we're going to talk about maybe how we can help people in just a bit. For for people who are not aware with bulimia, how would you describe it? So bulimia is the type of eating disorder where folks engage in binge eating, and, and it's important that we define binge eating because binge eating People like to throw the word binge around these days, especially, you know, we like to say we binge watched a show and things like that, but binge eating is very serious and it's eating an inordinate amount of food in one sitting. The average binge is about 2,800 calories in 72 minutes, and so people are eating very rapidly, eating past the point of fullness, often eating even in the absence of hunger, and so, and then they engage in a compensatory method and when people think of bulimia they often think of vomiting afterward to com- to compensate and that is definitely the case but there are also other purging behaviors using laxatives and also engaging in high amounts of exercise afterward or engaging in fasting rituals afterward 
So anytime somebody binges and then engages in any of those compensatory behaviors, it would be considered bulimia nervosa. Is there a connection between something like bulimia where some people, when they're down and out, don't want to eat anything and others just constantly want to stuff themselves? Is there something mentally that they want to hurt themselves that way? So that's a really good question, and some people do use their eating disorder regardless of the type, whether it's anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder as a form of self-harm. About 75% of people with eating disorders also have a trauma history, and they're just trying to make themselves feel better or feel safer, and that is so important for folks to know as well. So obviously if you have this, and it's very serious, as you mentioned, the, the health ramifications how do you help people? Are, are all these uh, eating disorders different the way you help them uh, get better, or are they pretty much the same? So, you know, I think in the 24 years that I've been treating eating disorders, I have never met one person with the same exact eating disorder as another person. It is really important that we are curious and ask questions and understand the function of that person's eating disorder and coping with their lives. Eating disorders are a coping skill. They're just maladaptive coping skills and not much different than the way that people use substances. Um, it's, it's so important to have a team of individuals that are involved. Ask your primary care physician or your pediatrician about their eating disorder knowledge, training, and experience. So seeing a care provider that is specialized in treating eating disorders is of the utmost importance. And or finding a therapist, if that doesn't seem to be the right amount of support, Finding a higher level of care, such as intensive outpatient treatment, partial day treatment, residential, inpatient. There are many levels of care designed to support people, depending on the frequency and severity of their eating disorder. Do most people with eating disorders need to be hospitalized, or outpatient is uh, usually the general way they do it? It, it really depends. Mm -hmm. I mean, early detection early diagnosis and early intervention are the keys for the best prognoses and it's so important that somebody get an evaluation done by somebody with eating disorder experience so that based on the frequency and severity of the eating disorder symptoms their what their lab work tells us their medical status that's how we would decide which level of care somebody would need to be successful in their treatment and recovery so you've been doing this for a long time did you ever have a problem yourself with this um, you know, I when I get asked that question a lot, and that question I always tell folks, it's really a catch-22, right? So if I share my own personal experience and I find that that's often distracting to people, um, and then um, folks with eating disorders, uh, a common symptom is they often prefer to take care of others rather than themselves, mm -hmm. and so that's not something that I choose to share. It is something that is a personal decision, and many people do choose to share. It's just a, a, a touchy area that sometimes can backfire because self-disclosure is a powerful tool in therapy, and it also can be a hindrance if not used correctly. But I am very passionate about empowering people to change their lives and uh, find that there is a full and lasting recovery with eating disorders. Recovery is so possible. And I work to instill that hope in people every day. Are there things that family members and friends would say that actually hurt the situation? Yeah, so again, it's so important that people are aware of their own 
stigmas and their the own way that they perpetuate um, eating disorders and the focus on on food and bodies. So again, being very aware of your own language and how you talk about your own body and other people's bodies. It's also so important to practice and teach mindful eating habits and to create a meal situation that is positive and comfortable versus chaotic or negative and um and practicing self-compassion and um and compassion for others and being curious and expressing kind and loving concern if you're worried about somebody that has an eating disorder and letting them know that you are there to listen and you care about them that health is available and that this is a very serious life-threatening condition that should be taken seriously as it comes with many medical comorbidities I learned so much about um, Karen Carpenter reading the biography about her and how she grew up. And um, even though she was so obviously thin and sickly looking, uh, you know, there would be people that acted like, oh, well, you know, what she'll have to eat more. When you have um, not eaten for so long or just eaten, just eat, eat lettuce or something low calorie, or how do you get your, uh, how do you get your, uh, feeling that you want to eat again. I mean, it must be so difficult to get an appetite back. It is so difficult. You're right. And typically people that restrict their intake to that level do require hospitalization because you can't wait for your appetite to return if you're in that situation. So some people do experience a a loss of appetite and they do require 24-7 support in order to resume eating and also their labs need to be monitored and their heart rate needs to be monitored to make sure that they are increasing their calories at a safe level and that they are, you know, being watched for risk of cardiac arrhythmias and potential cardiac Mm -hmm. arrest. Do eating disorders uh, run in the family? So, yes. So I think that, you know, certainly there are studies that show a biological uh, relationship with eating disorders and also what's just as important is that eating disorders can be learned. Uh, a household where there is a high focus on you know, beauty ideals or a focus on food and body shape and comments about people in the family's bodies or even people outside the home's bodies, calories, food, assigning food moral value, good and bad, or calling food healthy or unhealthy creates thoughts and, and, a, and a feeling that I am only as good as I look or that my body is the most important thing about me. And so it's really important that families are aware of that. And then also being mindful of their use of the scale. I always encourage people to not have a scale at home and to only, if, if they're concerned about their weight or they want to know their weight, to do find that out when they go for their yearly appointment. And, you know, if people in the home are constantly have a scale in their bathroom and they step on it every day, that just reinforces mm-hmm. that pattern and that habit. Rebecca Bardwell is here for a few more minutes. Very important segment of our program. She's an eating disorder treatment expert. One of our listeners has a question for you, we hope. Hi, welcome. What's your question? Oh, sorry. Okay. That was a sorry. So, um, what can you... You know, I was looking up uh, eating disorders, and there were so many, and there's such a list, and there are so many places that I didn't even know existed, so many places I didn't know existed that can help people with eating disorders. So people might say, well, who do I go to? My doctor may know about this or my psychiatrist, but 
There are lots of places around, aren't there? Absolutely. There are lots of outpatient providers that specialize in eating disorders. And if you're looking for outpatient care, you can, um, there are lots of, you could even just Google eating disorder specialist and lots of things will come up. Um, I am the assistant vice president of clinical operations at Walden Behavioral Care, um, which is part of the Montanito and affiliate family. And we are located in Middletown, Connecticut, and we're pretty centrally located, which provides easy access for people living in Connecticut and even Rhode Island. We welcome individuals of all genders in our day and evening programs. We have a variety of specialized eating disorder programs. Um, They are unique to religion, including a program for people of the Jewish faith, people that specifically struggle with binge eating disorder, people that specifically struggle with ARFID, and also people that are part of the LGBTQ plus population. So when people go to you for assistance, and I've been reading about it, it sounds very, very credible that um, do they do they stay or just they have um, just a few visits a week, or how does that work? Yeah, so, so again, we provide a full service, so you would start with an evaluation, and then based on the frequency and severity of your eating disorder and also what we see in your lab work and in your vital signs, we would decide on a level of care. And at Walden Behavioral Care, we actually offer treatment at every level of care. So we have an inpatient and residential program in Massachusetts, and we have a day treatment program in Middletown, Connecticut. Um, Across the Montanito and Affiliate family, we actually have 50 programs in 15 states. And so we really work to increase access to care because, again, early diagnosis, detection, and treatment um, by a specialist is so important. And that's not too far from where we are, and you you cover a lot of areas, and, you know, this is so important. You're talking about somebody's life. Coincidentally, before the interview, we were talking about bullying. A listener was talking about a lot of bullying going on in school. I can probably imagine bullying could have uh, something to do with a connection to eating disorders as well. Absolutely. Again, bullying is considered traumatic, and bullying often centers around appearance or somebody's weight, and it can absolutely directly lead to an eating disorder or a change in eating habits. If someone is listening today and they're saying, boy, that rings a bell, that rings a bell with me, I'm taking too many diet pills, I'm pretending that I'm eating meals and I'm not eating meals and some of the things. What would be a good, at this particular time, to start on the right track? Absolutely. So we do have a website, and I think if you are the kind of person that needs to read a little bit and and, um, absorb it a little bit, get a little bit more information, please visit our website at montanitoaffiliates.com, or you could even give Walden a call at 888 Seven nine one zero 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 four, and we can answer any question you have. Set you up with an evaluation. There's no promise that you you're not um, you know you're not put in a place where you're forced to enter any treatment. Mm-hmm. It would even be good for some people just to have the information to get an evaluation and see which level of care would be appropriate. We could even help connect you with outpatient providers if none of our programs meet your needs. You know, I know so many people, Rebecca, who don't eat breakfast. I don't know. I know it's probably not connected to what we're talking about, but does that uh, contribute more? I've heard that if you don't eat breakfast and then when you eat later that the buildup of weights is more excessive. 
It's, it certainly can be. Eating regular meals is so important for proper nourishment, and mm-hmm. oftentimes skipped meals lead to being less able to sense your hunger fullness at the next meal. So if you go into your first meal of the day, late in the day, you're much more likely to eat more rapidly, mm-hmm. which then makes it more difficult to tell whether or not you're full and could end up leading to feeling too full and then feelings of guilt and shame arise and then you're tempted to skip the next meal and you can already see how this begins to snowball. So one other thing and that is something that's very prevalent these days particularly with young people is that when you're not happy you know when you're not eating that there's something wrong you know when you're eating too much there's something wrong you know when you're purging there's something wrong and uh, is there a history of uh, suicides with people who are in this situation? Absolutely. There are high rates of suicide with eating disorders, Mm. and um, that is something that, sadly, we see oftentimes, and um, it's so important to be asking the questions and to be getting proper assessment and care if you are thinking about hurting yourself in any way. There is help available, and people care about you, and your life is important, and um, Suicide is very much uh, a risk in eating disorders, a high risk. Well, Rebecca, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I hope we help some folks today. And uh, I hope so, too. Thank you so much for, for making the time today to talk about such an important topic. It's my too. pleasure. So the, the easiest number is 888-791-0004? That's correct. Okay. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you so much. You, too. Thanks. Rebecca Bardwell, eating disorder expert.